current topic. Let me get started here. 5.45 p.m. here on Wednesday, 8.45 on the East Coast. Welcome to Mic Drop. Um, the call-in application that allows you to ask kind of questions and the community we've built here is one that I'm really proud of. Got a lot of longtime folks uh, reaching out uh, to have us discuss some topics. and I love that feedback. That's why I do it. Um, we're going to be a little bit catch-as-catch-can for the next couple of months uh, until we get deeper into the midterm. So I'm going to try to do it as regularly as I can, but um, you all know I'm I'm eyeballs deep right now in the middle of a book, um, which is due out in spring of uh, next year, May of next year, right in the middle of the presidential campaigns and had a long meeting with the publishers today. Uh, it's a lot of work, a lot, lot of work, had no idea. Um, I've heard about it, but until you experience it, um, it's, it's tough. And um, so it's kept me really singularly focused on that uh, at the moment, but I do want to kind of touch bases as things develop. And so for, Next uh, few months, probably, I'm going to uh, do my best to do Wednesdays, but reality is I'm going to do them as it, situations and issues arise. And boy, do we have an issue today with Fox News and the settlement with Dominion. Um, somebody also asked um, if I could talk about the Wisconsin race, uh, the Supreme Court race, and I'm happy to do that because in many ways, they're a little bit intertwined, they're a little bit linked. Uh, for those of you longtime listeners, you know that uh, I focus really deeply on certain specific demographics, and I'm going to do that a little bit on both the Dominion discussion and the Wisconsin conversation uh, that's been popping up. So uh, without further ado, let me talk real briefly. Uh, and also, if you've got questions, you can go ahead and pop them into the chat. It's also a really good idea, by the way, to go ahead and jump into the queue. We've got the public uh, segment open here. So if you do have any questions, jump in a little bit early, and we can go ahead and have uh, questions taken uh, earlier, sooner rather than later, kind of helps me uh, pace the conversation a little bit. Um, two two uh, factors to remember about what Fox News is facing, at least two, two of the most significant and are really related to the topic of the conversation today, okay? The first is, of course, Dominion settling uh, the defamation lawsuit for $787 million uh, with Fox News. Now, look, I'm not a lawyer. You guys know that. I say that a lot as we go through a lot of these legal troubles that are happening um, in uh, in Fox News world and the right wing media ecosystem. I'm not. I'm not. Um, I don't have the expertise to give legal advice or to talk about the legal dynamics. But as you all know, I feel very confident, and comfortable talking about the political dynamics and some of the political outcomes that are likely to emanate from what is happening here. And that's why once I heard about not only the uh, the defamation lawsuit being settled, but the size of it, I'm like, we got to do a show tonight because. I think it's going to have a much greater impact than most people realize in an area where nobody is talking about yet. Okay. The second is, of course, there's this Smartmatic, this $2.7 billion defamation lawsuit. Same grounds, basically, same, same issue, same questions. I don't know if it will be as difficult to prove uh, or as easy to prove uh, from what Fox was clearly facing, uh, a, a public relations fiasco, just an absolute nightmare. If this had gone to trial, it, as I understand it, had already. Um, uh, decided on a jury, which was kind of the last gambit um, uh, for Fox to reach out to um, the um, plaintiff's attorneys and decide whether or not to proceed with the case and work on cutting a deal. And that's clearly what happened. Gene, I see you in the queue there. Uh, be patient with me. I'll, go, I'll get to you uh, uh, first. 
Um, and, and clearly Fox didn't want this, right? And there's a reason why they didn't want it. Uh, I don't think it's really necessarily part of the credibility question. Like Fox decided in the Roger Ailes era, the Rupert Murdoch era, that that wasn't really that important to them. Uh, I think the bigger problem was, was uh, keeping them off message, um, derailing them from where they wanted to go. And that, that's particularly problematic because keep in mind, Murdoch wants to get away from the Trump messaging. Trump served him very well for reasons history may not ever know, okay? But, but Murdoch uh, wanted Trump elected president, okay? And he got him elected president, or at least was a part of that process. Um, he's moved decidedly towards DeSantis. Could it be because of the legal trouble? Sure, it could be. Could it be because it's just bad for um, his viewership and his audience? Probably more likely. We'll get into that fragmentation of the right-wing media bubble in just a second. But there's also this problem with Smartmatic bringing up a, a very similar lawsuit. I'm sure there's differences uh, on grounds. Again, I'm not going to speak to legally. But what I am going to say is the same political problem, the same political downside exists. And my strong suspicion is Fox is now going to do everything that it can to negotiate a settlement to get Smartmatic out of the way as well. We'll see how Smartmatic plays that. Uh, my strong suspicion is they probably ought to be doing it. Um, they probably ought to be um, uh, hold a little bit firmer than, than Dominion did going forward. And I'm not going to blame Dominion for taking a deal or cutting a deal. I obviously wish they would have gone all the way. It's easy for me when someone's dangling $787 million in front of you when your job is to go convince Podunk counties to start using an already tainted brand's name to, to count votes um, um, and make your life a living hell for the next 25 or 30 years. So I'm not going to judge them. Probably would have done the same thing. Maybe would have held out a little longer. At least I'd like to think that I would have. But the truth of the matter is, turning down $787 million cash in hands today is something that's really difficult to turn away from. But but that's not what we're here to talk about. What we're here to talk about is what are the practical impacts of this. And remember, part of the reason why Fox was sticking to the lie that they knew that they were driving, the attacks on Dominion that they were driving, largely driven by Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, was because they were afraid, and these were in the texts, right? They were afraid of losing audience to the OANNs and to the Newsmaxes, the people that have no compulsion, no compunction, no inner desire to actually tell the truth, that actually traffic in the lies, traffic in the nonsense, and are feeding the beasts that the right-wing media has created over the course of the past 8, 10, 12, 15 years. That's literally how these other other smaller news sources are monetized. And remember, we don't talk about this a lot either. I'm still absolutely convinced that one of the primary drivers of Trump's engagement in the 2016 presidential campaign in the very first place was because he wanted to start a media company. Okay, Why is that? Why was that? The reason why is because Fox News is so dominant in the cable space. Right? MSNBC and CNN combined don't have near the market share that Fox does. Fox is a monolith. It's a Goliath in this space. It has a huge, huge footprint. And it's also, the, the, the model, the way they've structured it, isn't reliant on advertising. That's just gravy. They're making enough money from cable subscriptions from the get-go from the three major cable companies in this country. So their, their money's built in. Okay, which is why their audience is so large. And because of those contracts, it's why they're ubiquitous. It's why they're everywhere. It's not that they're necessarily selling good garbage, although I guess they are. It's because 
They're literally hardwired into everybody's cable packages in this country. Okay, and MSNBC and CNN can't say the same thing. It's important, but it's also important to understand that because of its hegemonic position, it's not quite a hegemon, but it's pretty damn close, there's a ton of market to be peeled off from that space. And if you understand the right-wing media bubble, the way that it works is the way conspiracy theories develop and that they emanate is they literally begin from thousands of bloggers putting out all sorts of bullshit, some orchestrated, some not, some just looking for for clicks, some looking for traffic to monetize. Literally, this is their job, either foreign or domestically, to get the the uh, yeah the clicks required to generate uh, the income, so that they don't have to get real jobs. I suppose they're just rather traffic in the bullshittery of the audience that they're able to kind of build up. From there, the most heavily trafficked uh, news news stories starts to bubble up into larger aggregators. Right or to even digital uh, online um, aspects of the OANNs or the Newsmaxes, and if you've got a good enough story, it will start to be promulgated on some of the smaller regional cable news sites, or more importantly, on a lot of the streaming sites, the Steve Bannon's Infowars, Roger Stone's stuff, Giuliani's show, Don Jr.'s show. If you follow social media, every once in a while you'll see these weird. Uh, peculiar characters. They look more like circus freaks than actual uh, journalists that are hosting these shows trying to build an audience. Okay? They all feed off of each other. It's not terribly dissimilar to what happens on the left, but the difference is these posit themselves as actual news. The left, from my experience, tends to use the CNNs, the MSNBCs of the world, the mainstream media news outlets, but are more focused on attacking and undermining the right wing. The right wing, although they've got their enemies, what they really do is they they posture themselves at same content in reverse of what the left is doing as actual news. Like they're, they're trying to, 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 to posture that this is actually newsworthy. These are actually newsworthy items. And oftentimes what happens is by the time that it bubbles up to Fox News, there are so many people in that bubble committed to the idea that it's true that now that the, what used to drive the discourse 15 years ago, if Fox News, Fox News said it, it went downhill. Now, just like in Congress, right? The Republicans used to lead and tell their people what's to what to believe. Now the grassroots tells them you're either going to listen to us or we're going to get rid of you. The same dynamic exists with the media system, the ecosystem. And, and it's become so atomized and so differentiated that while there are a lot of people that, that still remain uh, in control of a lot of this, the Ben Shapiros, for example, whose algorithms still dominate Facebook, they still dominate Twitter, they still dominate most of the news uh, sources out there in the right wing sphere. A lot of this stuff just sort of, uh, once it bubbles up and something catches fire, it becomes a news story that a Tucker Carlson or a Laura Ingram or a Sean Hannity or even a Brett Bayer now has to cover. And they have to cover it, not necessarily because they want to, although they don't have any qualms about it, but if they don't, a large part of their audience that's already talking about it will start to drift to those news sources where it is being discussed, where it is being covered. That's what happened with the big lie, okay? The, the problem when Arizona made that Fox News call in Arizona, did I say that? When Fox News made the early call that Joe Biden won Arizona, 
The problem wasn't just that they called it, it's that they called it against the narrative of the bubbling up messaging system that Carrie Lake and other and, and, and Blake Masters had put into place that the, that, the, the, that, that the Democrats were stealing the election. That was the problem. It's not that the math, although it is a problem, it's not that the math was showing that this is the trajectory of where it was going. And by the way, a lot of the Fox News guys got a lot of flack from other uh, decision desks saying they made the call too early also. I, uh, of course, I was very close to it. I disagreed. I was saying with a high degree of confidence that Biden was going to win Arizona, not just because of the bravado back in February, but as we were looking at things come in, the votes coming in, in Maricopa County, I knew that the margin was going to be closer than I, I thought it was going to be, but there were not enough votes for Trump to win that state. And it's gotten worse, by the way, for Republicans. That's why Carrie Lake's numbers in these high, dense Republican precincts bailed on her uh, in these last midterms in 2022. Getting off topic here. But bottom line is, Fox News, I think, made a very accurate, very responsible call on what happened in Arizona. But from a market perspective, all of the narrative was contrary to what these people were already convinced and believing. You have to remember, these folks were not saying, I wonder who's going to win. Let's look at the votes and count them. They have already been preconditioned to the fact that they had already won before Election Day, that it was like mathematically impossible for Kerry Lake to lose, Donald Trump to lose. That's part of the messaging that happens in the right-wing ecosystem. So when Fox News, which is at the top, puts out something factual that is counter to that belief, it's not like you're just upsetting sports fans who are like, why is our announcer talking bad about the Sacramento Kings or the Los Angeles Dodgers or the New York Giants, right? Every, every, every fan base wants a homer, right? That's what we call them. We want the announcer to be unbiased, but not really. We want them to lean towards the experience that we're having from our own home show to tell us what we want to hear. So when the ump makes a questionable call, of course the announcer is going to side with the home team. That's exactly what happened with Fox heading into the Dominion, into this problem with Dominion. And a lot of the ringleaders... Giuliani to a lesser extent, but absolutely Sidney Powell was the one who was leading the charge at the lowest levels of the of the of the this this, this elaborate right wing ecosystem. Who had heard of Sidney Powell before this? Nobody. She's just a crazy lawyer with enough crazy conservative connections to get out there and have the, the guts, I guess that's one way to say it, or the ignorance to actually say. And, and promulgate enough of the lies. I think she was the one who, who said that Dominion was owned by Hugo Chavez or, 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 or Venezuela or whatever the hell she was talking about. Like that's, that was, anybody willing to drive that type of a narrative is going to get traction, not with the Fox Newses of the world, not even with the OANNs and Newsmaxes to begin with. They're going to get traction with the blogosphere that's out there. They're going to get traction in this fake right-wing ecosystem that needs the most salacious, the most crazy content possible to drive clicks to keep them at the top of the algorithm, okay? So when you've got a lawyer with quasi-conservative credentials who's making these outlandish claims about Dominion 
and, and Hugo Chavez and Venezuela and the Chinese Communist Party, whatever the hell she's talking about, that drives enough of the social media bubbles at the bottom of the bubble to emanate up. And then the top of the chain, the tip top of the pyramid is Fox News, has to drive that same narrative or they end up looking like they're betraying their audience who already believes it. Okay, it's really important to understand that. It's not like Fox News is introducing new information. They're, they're repeating what they are seeing from their own news channels with the understanding that the vast majority of their audience has already been preconditioned to believe this stuff. And if they go with a counter narrative, meaning the truth, they're going to lose their audience. Because their audience, again, isn't, they're not, they're not undecided. I keep saying there's nobody that's undecided in America. There's nobody who believed that Joe Biden could actually win on the Republican side. It was like inconceivable to them. Because remember, they're not trying to be judicious about the information that they're getting. They're following along this, 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 this I don't call it media, a conspiracy theory laden narrative. They are way down the rabbit hole, way down. And this is not anything that Fox ever understood would happen. I, I mean, look, you feed the alligators long enough, it's going to come and eat you, okay, at some point. But but th th this is not something that they envisioned when, when Roger Ailes took over Fox and started creating GOP TV, okay? It was designed as a counter to ABC, CBS, NBC, okay? It, it is now... If it does not reflect what's happening in conspiracy theory world, it's viewed as an enemy. It's viewed as suspect. It's viewed as the establishment, right? The whole premise of Republicanism now is this countercultural sense that everybody's out to get us. It's the deep state. It's the it's, it's everybody except for um, the people that are willing to attack and destroy, tear everything down. It's why they bought into Trump as their champion. That's a whole different whole different episode that we'll get into in a little bit. But that's why this is so damaging, okay? This doesn't just go away for Murdoch. This doesn't just go away for Fox, okay? Cost them 787 million bucks. I think it's like 1 20th of the cash that they have on hand. Maybe a little bit more than that. Maybe about 20%, not 1 20th. About 20% of the cash on hand, by the way. That's how flush Fox is with cash, okay? So is this a setback for them financially? Yeah, you don't want to put up that kind of money, but it's not like like the, the big tobacco settlements that were crushing these companies. It's not even anywhere near that. It's a speed bump in the road, and they've got plenty of opportunity to recalibrate where they're going. One of the big challenges for Murdoch, though, is he's already cast his lot with DeSantis, who is, who's flailing. I'm not saying he can't come back, but I don't know where he goes. Listeners of the show, you all know, I've been saying DeSantis is overrated. This dude's a paper tiger. He's going to take a couple shots to the chin, and he's going to go down to his knees in the first round or two before he even announces his campaign. Not saying I told you so, but kind of take a look at it right now, okay? It's not looking good for DeSantis. There's like a 20, 25-point spread now between Trump and DeSantis, let alone everybody else, okay? So, Trump owns the Republican Party. Moreover, that more moreover, he owns a third of the American public. He owns them. They'll do whatever he says. Okay, that was part of what he was doing uh, in running for president in 2016 was creating a market that he could monetize. 
something that was loyal, something that was intense, something that will give you their money every time you ask for it, which is why he turns his own indictment into a fundraising email. Remember? Or when uh, Ivanka, uh, Ivana Trump dies, he turns that into a fundraising opportunity and buries her in the back of the golf course in New Jersey. Okay, this is, it's, it's, it's about money. It's about power. And ultimately, that, I think, is what's going to lead to some of the challenges for Fox. So sorry about the long Mike Madrid windup, but you guys are all used to it now. Here's why it's problematic. The reason why it's problematic is because Fox now has, is, is now on record, and the judiciary knows that these guys have a clear, documented history of, of lying, not from an opinion perspective. I mean, literally from texts of the people saying, we know this isn't true, this is coming from crazy town, and then five minutes later going on the air and saying the exact opposite of the truth. It's very rare, I don't have to be a lawyer to say it's very rare to have that kind of documented evidence and willful ignorance and willful deceit of, of your audience documented that way. It, extraordinarily powerful. So if you're Fox, you've got, you, you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. Your choice is, let's get back to legitimate journalism and lose the audience that you've built. Or you lean into the bullshit and you end up having to go back to court for round two, round three, round four. Okay? They're, again, the size of their market is so big that the, the opportunity for contenders now to rise up and challenge their dominance on the American right at the tip of the at the top of the mountain, the tip of the spear. It, it basically it's a calling card for people to come and challenge them at this point and press that case. That's how much money is involved. Again, if you add up CNN and MSNBC, combine them, they're not as big as Fox. Okay, Fox is so dominant. It's so dominant, and their money is so hardwired that the real market opportunity is not to go in and try to present objective news, right? That died 10 years ago. By the way, sorry if you're gonna get upset about this. MSNBC is not objective news, folks. CNN is not objective news. I know you all think Rachel Maddow is speaking honesty and truth to you. She's not, okay? She, her job is to do what Sean Hannity's job is. It's to piss you off and to make you angry and to be a cheerleader to get you as invested in, in their market and keep your eyeballs fixated and scared and pissed off and angry so that you keep tuning in to generate more dollars. That's all of their job, okay? If you want objective news, go watch PBS. If you're watching Rachel Maddow, might as well just turn on Sean Hannity. It's the same garbage. It's, it's fast food for your brain, and it's designed to make you angry, and it's designed to make you scared. So if you feel that you've been angry and scared for the past six, eight years, I'm not saying it wasn't justified, but it's probably not a good idea to keep feeding the boogeymen, okay? That's what gets you hooked on this shit, okay? Once you're hooked, on anything, by the way, there's a, a large revenue stream that follows it, okay? So there's a lot of money from the three big cable shows that are that is dedicated entirely to making you scared and angry. And if you don't believe me,
put your phone down for two hours or don't click on to the top three channels, Twitter, MSNBC, CNN, wherever you get your sources for just for one afternoon, one afternoon and watch what happens. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel better. It's like purging all that McDonald's you've been eating for six, eight months. Okay. You will feel better. I'm way off topic. The, the, the market opportunity on the American right is extraordinary. It's significant. It's why Newsmax started. It's why OANN started. They were going just straight conspiracy theory. They've got their own financial challenges. My prediction here is there's going to be an atomization of the media on the right. There's going to be a movement away from Fox News as it figures out which lane it's trying to sift through. It's not going to be able to keep all of its audience. I don't know how much of it it's going to lose, but it's going to be in the double digits. It will lose 10% of its market share. It won't necessarily be because of people worried about this news story. People don't care on the right. They don't care that they're being lied to. They don't care, okay? All they care about is somebody telling them what they're already inclined to believe, and they will go to that news source. So if I'm, if I'm in the center right, I'm going to go to that news source. If I'm on the conspiracy right, I'm going to go down that source. Fox News can't be all things to all people anymore. And that's what this was a sign uh, uh, telling uh, uh, them, is they're going to have to make a business decision. You can't keep operating the way you are, and it's going to be hammered home again by Smartmatic. The days of people rallying to Fox News to say, this is fair and balanced, this is true, this is honest, are gone. Okay, Trump is, is running against Fox News. A number of, I don't follow it that closely, but there's three or four other right-wing media figures that are all running against Fox News. That's going to keep happening as they get more money by developing larger and larger market shares as Fox News starts to peel apart, okay? It's too big on the American right. Fox News at the tip of the spear, it will probably still be there, but instead of looking like this, it's going to start looking like this. There's a flattening that's going to happen. And it's why Marjorie Taylor Greene is now taking on Nick Fuentes and Ali Alexander for their pedophile stuff and fighting with Laura Loomer. That helps Laura Loomer. Doesn't help Marjorie Taylor Greene. It helps Laura Loomer become a, have the, start peeling off of Marjorie Taylor Greene's audience. And as they start scrambling for followers and fights and audience and streaming audience and listeners, we're seeing this atomization that is happening on the right with their media, this fragmentation. Okay. Will most of it come together when they start running against Biden and the Democrats? Yes. Yes, it will. Well, enough? I don't think so. And that's going to get us to this Wisconsin issue. Kevin, I see you here in the show. We are going to talk about that next. I did ma uh, mention it. But first, we're going to take Gene up um, before I move on to some of these other topics. But, Kevin, you might want to jump into the queue, too, so that you can help me understand a little bit more where you want to go with Wisconsin. We'll talk about that because the audience demographics are really what's key. And we'll talk a little bit more about that audience demographic, too, because I've, and I've mentioned this before. The Fox News demographic, right, is, is like 65 plus. It's old. Every day it's losing voters. I've said this before, too. Every day that we wake up and America is still standing, we are closer to ending this affliction. Why? Young people are very anti-Republican and more of them are turning 18. Old people are completely bought into the idea of what the Republican Party is, and they're leaving the planet every day. 
So simple demographics, and you know that I believe this to my core, demographics properly understood is destiny, okay? Fox News at some point is going to have to pivot away from that 65-year-old audience because as its demography gets older and older and older and older, it's becoming harder and harder to make money as the audience starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller, okay? There's an imperative there. There's a return on investment. is simply math, and that's what Murdoch's going to have to worry about while this atomization that I was just describing continues, Fox is going to have to make some very important business decision. Gene, I know you're there. One quick, one, one, one last quick thing. Um, let, let's also be mindful when it comes to Fox News. As I mentioned, it's literally built. When I say built, I mean focus grouped and researched. The amount of money they spend on the visual imagery and the talking heads and the news that they're talking about and the way that they talk about has been so researched for so long because they're trying to keep people glued, those eyeballs glued to their sets. Fox News is babysitting our old people in this country, okay? If you know somebody 65 or older, there's a better than 50-50 chance that they're consuming Fox News, much better than 50-50. I know not your parents. I know not your grandparents. I know not the people that you know and love. I'm sure they're watching MSNBC or something that's equally toxic to our, our, our brains as human beings. But my point is this, because Fox is hardwired into cable programming, because it's hardwired into cable packages in a way that nobody but ESPN, I think is the only one that's bigger. It is, it is scientifically focus grouped and the colors that they're used, the messaging that they're used, the logo sounds that they're using, everything is, is millions and gazillions of dollars to make sure that those eyeballs are focused as long as they can. And old people who are really not doing a whole lot more than sitting around watching TV are basically glued to Fox News. And that is creating their political opinions. They're predisposed to be there. But think about it, guys. Who's the most, who's the most frightened about demographic change? It's old people. When you're talking about making America great again, that's not a that's not a message for young people. <laughs> young people, by, by definition, by the way, young people, the youngest generations are always the most optimistic. Always. Okay? From the beginning of polling and modern research in the post-Second World War era, young people are always more optimistic than older people. It's a part of being a human being. Your whole life is ahead of you. There's an optimism. You're looking forward to things. As an older person, older people get more curmudgeonly. They get more cranky. They get more angry. They get more upset. And now we've got an entire media system that is feeding into that anger. So watch old people, you know, get a cup of coffee, come back four hours later. They're steaming pissed off at the Mexicans coming across the border and the Muslims enacting Sharia law and the trans guy on Bud Light and whatever else they're fucking pissed off about. That's what... The, the news is doing. It's feeding into what they're demographically predisposed to because it keeps them sitting in that chair for four, five, six hours a day watching it and getting angrier and angrier and angrier. That's where we can lower blood pressure in this country is to get rid of Fox News. Uh, sorry for going on so long. Gene, you've got a question. Yeah, but my question's about the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So, <laughs> of course, it is uh, sorry. I could, probably, I could probably wait to ask it until you, you cover mm -hmm. that. 
No, I'm done. I think I'm done with that. If anybody wants to ask questions, jump back in. But no, let's talk about whatever you guys want to talk about. Let's talk about Wisconsin. Let's, I know Kevin's behind you in the queue, and he, he, he was the one who said, this is what we need to talk about. So let's talk about it. What are the questions that you've got about it? Okay, the questions I've got about it is that I have an idea about why um, the vote, why it, why this the point spread was the way it was, and it has to do with the women's vote. But I want to know if you either have data about that or an opinion about the women's vote, because I have a my opinion is that um, I think women across all demographics voted against it, voted for Janet Prasewitz, and yeah, I, I wonder if there's anything. Uh, untoward or unusual about that i'm not i'm not phrasing the question well but um i think you can know where i'm going yeah i do i do and it's a great question and let me say this i mean they're, they're, look i've been in politics a long time there's a, there's there's an immediate um and you see this on social media all the time every every demographic group that you identify with primarily there's usually the strong predilection to say we're the ones who did it because that's the experience through which a person feels their passion, their involvement for it. So, for example, no, that's a, after the twenty, that's, that's not what I'm saying. Hold on. I know you're not, let me, but this is this is. The, if you follow my show, you know I'm going to do a really long windup. So, got I'm it, got it, got it. I'm trying to explain for the audience, and if I don't get to it, then then, then jump in at the end and 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 and, and tighten up tighten up uh, the question for me so I can tighten up the answer. What you're asking, I think, is what are women. Is there any data or has anybody shown any data that shows that it were women were break of all demographic groups were breaking towards a more pro-choice position? Was that determinative? And does that tell us anything about the future? Is that essentially where you're going? Okay. So what I'm trying to do is explain uh, something a little bit bigger uh, related to that, because part of the narrative that came out of the 2022 elections, this last one we had, was all these Gen Zers saying, see, young people saved America. Young people saved democracy. There's like three or four of these Twitter uh, profiles that, that keep putting out this bullshit to that narrative. Uh, one is it's just, it's not true, okay? And I'm getting to your answer. I promise that you I am. Young people are showing up in bigger numbers and they are more partisan Democrat than they otherwise would be. And if you took young people out of the equation, we would have had a very different election, okay? Same thing for women. I'm, I'm going to get to, I'm get to it and explain a little bit more. Here's the problem with that kind of thinking. None of this happens in a vacuum, okay? You've heard me talk a lot about the college-educated white women vote going back to the um, 2020 presidential election. I've said this is going to be the determinative block. This is the vote that's going to make the difference. I believe that was the case. I will explain why in just a second, because I think it had everything to do with what happened in Wisconsin. But I also was saying, watch the Hispanic vote. Watch the Hispanic vote, because the Democrats are losing working class people, and working class people are not white people anymore. And white women, especially white progressive women, are having a conversation with themselves that is leaving everybody else out of the equation. So yes, women are consolidating under the Democratic Party in a way that the Democratic Party could not do themselves. This is really, really important to understand what happened in Wisconsin, what happened in 2022, and what happened in 2020. And I believe it's going to keep happening, but not for the reasons people think. Okay? People are not voting for Democrats because they like Democrats. They're voting for Democrats because they don't like their rights being taken away. 
Now, that may sound like it's the same thing. If it sounds like it's the same thing to you, you need to do a little bit more homework and listen better because this is not a pro-democratic vote. This move that is voting to Democrats is not suddenly compelled by the Democratic Party. I assure you of that. I assure you of that. It's an anti-Republican vote. And those are two completely different things. And it's what both parties fail to understand. And it has led to the devolution of our ability to govern. Is the Democrats now believe that they've got some sort of a mandate on these issues? They do not. The better way to ask the question is, why did it take white college-educated women, married women, which is a Republican demographic, by the way, this gender gap narrative up until 2022 is a bunch of bullshit. Young single women, especially women of color, voted for Democrats more than Republicans. But white college-educated women vote Republican. Married women vote Republican. And they have for a very, very, very long time. And you know what? There's a lot more of those voters than there are younger single vote women voters, which is why the Democrats have tried to use the abortion rights rallying crawl call since the mid-70s to say there's a gender gap, the Republicans are anti-women, and they're going to take your abortion rights away. And you know what? It never worked. From 1973 to 2022, it never worked. Okay? It, what it did do was it lessened the gap because it would get some young women to be more engaged in politics when they otherwise wouldn't be. This is a huge single issue for single issue voters of women under 28, 25 years old that don't care about politics are going to go in and vote for their right to choose. Their mothers back home, right, they're off of college, but back at home, their mothers are voting for capital gains tax cuts. They're voting to deregulate industries so that their family can keep making the money to afford to send them to college. And they're absolutely voting to make sure that there are things like three strikes measures and anti-crime measures to throw the bad guys in jail. And they're voting Republican, majority voting Republican. So that brings me, that's sorry, that's my long setup to Wisconsin. And what happened in Wisconsin is no different than what happened in 2022 midterms. Look at Kansas. Or what happened with the Lincoln Project when I was telling the public, the, the Republicans are going to lose these voters. That may not sound revolutionary now, but it was if you were listening to me at the time, not only because I was saying it and saying it publicly, but because that was different than what was been happening for the past 25 years. These women were not voting for Democrats. They were not voting because they felt that Roe was threatened. It took Roe to go away for them to go, oh, shit. Now I'm going to not, not vote for the Republicans. It's not voting for Democrats. They're not Democrats. They don't like Democrats, but they're frightened by to hell about the Republican Party right now. And that defines what happened in Wisconsin. So is this a winning strategy for, for Democrats? Well, the short answer is yes. The danger here is you're not building any sort of loyalty or constituency or, and this is extremely important, you're not driving an issues matrix that is actually speaking to these voters' concerns, okay? All you're saying is the Republicans have lost their freaking minds. That works as long as Republicans have lost their freaking minds. But don't be surprised 
when these same groups go back and vote for a Glenn Youngkin to be governor of Virginia a few months after they voted for Joe Biden to be president of the United States. Don't be surprised by that. That's what I'm saying. You're not selling them anything that they're buying. It's the Republicans are scaring the shit out of them. Those are two totally different things. And until those are extricated, the parties will not learn their lessons. It's also why the Democrats are losing working class voters, is they're absolutely convinced, absolutely convinced that they're the party of the working class. Except you know who is, isn't believing it anymore? The working class. It's not Mike Madrid saying that. I, I, I'm agnostic. I don't care. I'm just looking at the data, okay? And it's great that Joe Biden won working class voters. But he's, he's winning them by a, such a, a fast shrinking margin, or Hispanics, the same thing, such a fast shrinking margin that it's threatening the party's ability to hold on to their majority. Okay? So until you start articulating a positive aspirational vision for these voters, you're not actually, I think, winning anything lasting. You're not building any security, at least from a political perspective, on what people want. You're not building a movement. You're simply relying on the extremism of the opposite party to keep you in power. And if you think, okay, well, that's easy because the Republicans are so extreme, let me take you back again to Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. If the average person, the average woman in this country doesn't think that there's too much of a difference in extremism between the Republicans and the Democrats. They're breaking towards the Democrats right now, but the pivotal constituency that Democrats need to get to a majority are Republican women that are basically saying, I'm not a Democrat and I really don't like them that much. I certainly don't like their policies on economics and their cultural stuff is kind of batshit crazy, but the Republicans absolutely lost their mind. And, and that's where, the, that's where the, pivotal, the pivotal demographics are that make a difference in these elections. That's, that's what happened in Wisconsin. And the, the reason why I like Wisconsin as a state is it tells this narrative perfectly, right? Because Ron Johnson just won, Ron Johnson just, the Senator just won uh, in Wisconsin a few months ago, right? Ron Johnson was in Russia on the 4th of July. <laughs> the man's a crackpot. He's lost his mind. The same voters that voted for Johnson voted for this woman on the Supreme Court. That's how volatile this, and before that, a lot of them were voting for Scott Walker, okay? Wisconsin is the one state that is not really trending one direction or the other. I mean, it's probably moving slightly more blue demographically, but it's, it's such parity right now that it has the ability to bounce back and forth. Wisconsin is the most interesting state in the country, okay? But all I, the only lesson to be learned from Wisconsin is not that the Democrats are doing anything right. If that's what you're taking from Wisconsin, you're missing the whole thing. And I know you're not saying that and never said that, but I'm trying to give my analysis of what's going on in Wisconsin. The message for Wisconsin is if Republicans don't tone it down and, and here's the really bad part as a political consultant, and don't do a better job of framing the extremism of the Democratic Party, they're, they're going to keep losing elections in places like Maricopa County, Arizona, DeKalb County, uh, Georgia, in the Charlottes, Raleigh's, Durham's of North Carolina, and in the uh, 
surrounding counties of the University of Madison, Wisconsin. They're not going to be getting the margins that they need to win those races. That's the lesson of Wisconsin. Okay, the Democrats for 25 years have been banging this drum to no effect, to very little effect. I shouldn't say no, very, very, very little effect. It took a conservative court to actually eliminate Roe versus Wade. I can't, it's, it's, it's still hard to even say that. Roe versus Wade was overturned. Like that's freaking crazy. As a Republican consultant, I, you've asked me for the past 30 years, I would have never said that this threat was actually real. Okay. And, and not only did I not believe it, most Democrats didn't believe that either, which is why they were voting the way they were voting. Okay. So it takes an existential threat for people to actually wake up and say, oh shit, we've got to, I, I'm going to make a, a change, a profound change. And until then, that's uh, not going to happen. Complex answer. But, I'm probably going to so, have to listen to the video again, but thank you. Thank you so much for the question. I, I appreciate it. I'm sorry about the long windup. I just have a long way of, of getting to the, the narrative of the demographic change. I was trying to get folks to understand that because it is so important. Um, it's so important to understand. I think it's why, I think that's why I'm getting some of these thumbs up here too, is I think that's partly why people watch or tune into the show is, is I'm not just going to, uh, uh, um, I'm, I'm trying to give you guys a, a, a campaign demographic cross tabs explanation of, of, of why these things are happening so that you get a, a deeper understanding of, of the driving elements of voter behavior. Um, Kevin, but you, you actually brought this question up. Go ahead and unmute and uh, uh, drop that question for me. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't really have anything left to ask about uh, the previous <laughs> caller. Uh, I mean, you, in your response, you pretty much covered it. Um, I mean, I guess well, yeah, I would I mean, just feel free to disagree too. tell me if I'm wrong. No, I, I don't think that you're wrong. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, the prior state race, Ron Johnson winning, going from, going from that to an 11 point spread between a liberal and a conservative candidate, you know, I mean, it seems meaningful. It could be meaningful for all of the reasons that you outlined. Right. But I'm meaningful. just wondering if there's. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there's a sticking effect to that. There's no sticking effect. Um, there, there's not. And again, Wisconsin's really perfect. If you if you go back to the rise of Scott Walker and Paul Ryan in Wisconsin, and you look at the way Walker was taking on the teachers' unions, and he's beating back these recalls, right? It's like, the public was overwhelmingly opposed to what Walker was doing, but on election day, they're showing up and they're backing his agenda. It's not dissimilar to what was happening when the Republicans were looking at polling saying, people are really disgusted and pissed off with Bill Clinton personally. That doesn't necessarily mean they want him removed for office for what he did. Okay, It's also like Donald Trump, the latest round of polling. We talked about this on the last show. The public is saying 71, 72% of people in the YouGov poll were saying that Alvin Bragg's bringing charges was politically motivated. But 52, 53% were also saying that Donald Trump should be sent to prison or do prison time. I mean, it, you, you have to look a little bit deeper than just the top lines. And you all know that I'm very critical of top line polling because it doesn't tell you anything. 
And unfortunately, what happens is both parties doing their job will take the top lines and then drive their own narrative to their own constituencies with it. The reason why I bring up the example of, of Trump and the YouGov poll and Clinton during impeachment and Walker during the recall is to say that even when you have majority support, it doesn't mean that people are supportive of your agenda just because they agree with you. What they're looking for, what they're trying to discern is the underlying motivations. And, and, and Peggy here in the chat is saying another horse I've been beating, which is the negative partisanship. People are voting against extremism, okay? And, and it says something. I know it's hard to comprehend. If you find it hard to believe, that Ron Johnson was less extreme than, somebody help me with the name of the candidate that he ran against. Put in the chat if you remember. But the, 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 people like Charlie Sykes who know Wisconsin very well were saying, Ron Johnson's gonna win. You guys elected this very prog progressive young black candidate to run against Ron Johnson in Wisconsin you're not going to get the vote turnout that you need because people vote against Mandela Barnes. Thank you, crazy cat antsy. Mandela Barnes, I didn't think Mandela Barnes was that crazy, okay? But, and I, I'm not going to dismiss this as just racism or whatever. I'm not. I'm not. Wisconsin has too long of a history of people being very discerning and very judicious and going in and voting against extremist elements. So when you see it bouncing back and forth between people supporting Scott Walker's agenda and then the next election cycle supporting the teachers union agenda or voting for Ron Johnson and then coming back by 11 points, that's very significant. I'm glad that you brought that up. That's no small feat. That's a huge margin of voting against uh, the uh, and notice I said voting against. I don't think that they were voting for this woman as much as they were voting against and rejecting the extremism of the Republican Party encapsulated in this one issue. Because you are right on one issue does not mean that people will vote for or against you on most issues, especially abortion. There's a 30-year history of that. It's a 30-year history of pro-choice women voting for anti-choice or pro-life candidates, however you just decide to phrase it. 30 years. That is happening less and less as the threat becomes existential. That doesn't mean the Democrats are doing anything right. Okay? It means that the Republicans have overstepped. And if if you don't if you don't and let me put it, let me put it this way let me try it again this way too. If you don't think that critical race theory or the trans issues are having an effect with the constituencies that the Republicans need, I would tell you that you're wrong. They're fighting those cultural val cultural issues not because they're trying to convince a majority of the country. They're doing it as a counter to show the extremism of the Democratic Party. Who's more extreme on cultural issues? I'm going to say Republicans. I'm a Republican, right? They're not, they're not even close. The stuff that they're, they're, they're promulgating is just batshit nuts. But what, they, what they're really skilled at doing is knowing the female demographic in their audience and pushing them back into contention and saying, you may think we're crazy. You may believe that we're nuts. We may have gotten more extreme over the past few years since you've been voting for us, but you're still not a Democrat. You're the open border stuff, the Sharia law stuff, the, the videos of Chicago teenagers, black teenagers rioting, like all of that stuff works. It works really, really well. It's why they're doing it. And so when they attack Bud Light, 
They're not trying to convince young, single, college-educated women that they're right on the issue. That's not who they're talking to, okay? They're not even talking to white, non-college-educated, blue-collar working men in Alabama. It's not who they're talking to. Who they're talking to is they're talking to white, college-educated, suburban women and saying, who's gone to the extreme here? Who's taking it too far here? And the trans stuff doesn't play well with most demographics. It plays very well with younger folks. Under 30s, it's gold for the Democrats. Everybody else is not viewed as an issue the same way. It's the same way gay rights was 25, 20 years ago. Difference is there are a lot more gay Americans than there are trans Americans. And that's, that's part of the challenge, I think, that that social movement faces. But my point of the matter, my point of the issue is the Republicans will forever, even as they continue to shrink, especially as they continue to shrink, will lean into more and more of these arcane social issues and try to have America talking about that. They're not talking about policy anymore. It's not a policy party. They're not talking about gay marriage anymore because that train's left the station. America's changed from where they agreed with with Republicans like, like Rove and Bush in the 2002 elections, 2004 elections, when they put same-sex marriage on the ballot and drove a bunch of white Democrats over to their side. That's the, the trans is the new issue. And once that's changed and they lose that one, and they will in time, they'll find another one. They will keep finding these cultural issues because you cannot win. Um, if you can't win on the policy issues and the economic issues, which are always the top concern of Americans, you lean into cultural issues. And the Democrats have always, always, always swallowed that hook. It's why I wrote a piece for the LA Times uh, last week, I think it was, or two weeks ago. They, they asked for, for an analysis on, um, on Gavin Newsom's doing this tour, the governor of California doing this tour through the South. And, 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 uh, I, um, our moderator will find it, put, throw the link in there. It's, it's a great, I, I think it's a great piece. I mean, I wrote it, so of course I think it's great. But I, it, as I was writing it, it was occurring to me, what Gavin Newsom was doing, this is very pertinent to Wisconsin. What Gavin Newsom was doing in, in, in 2023 is the exact opposite of what Bill Clinton did in 1992 when he was saying it's the economy, stupid. Okay? Bill Clinton, a Southern governor from Arkansas, sees the Democratic Party has been losing this string of elections at the national level for his entire life. And he's like, you're not going to get Southerners back by being San Francisco liberals. We're not going to, the Democrats, these Dixiecrats, these Southern Democrats are never going to buy that stuff. You've got to get back to the basics and quit talking about these cultural issues and focus on economics, focus on working class voters, right? So he comes up, him and Carville come up with this narrative. It's it's the economy, stupid. It's talking about the economy. It's talking about the economy. And when Democrats started talking about the economy, they started moving working class voters into their column. There it is. There's, there's the opinion piece I wrote. Thank you for that. What Gavin Newsom is doing for the first time, first time, is he's showing Democrats how to win the culture war fights. Now remember, Gavin Newsom was the first major political figure in this country to legalize gay marriage. He did it as the mayor of San Francisco. He did it in 2004. Okay, the country was not ready for this. 
But he knew that San Francisco was, and he knew that this was where he was going. Very bold, ballsy move. You ever want to look up the YouTube video of him saying, you know, it's coming whether you like it or not. And he was exactly right. He knew that where San Francisco's cultural values were would be where California's cultural values were. That's where the country's cultural values were going to be, especially in the Democratic Party. He's betting. He's betting that the same thing is going to happen on all of these issues. And I think he's right. But it is a profound moment. It is a shift entirely away from where Bill Clinton was in 1992 when he was trying to get the Democratic Party away from cultural issues. Gavin Newsom is saying, no, that's literally how we're going to win. And the reason why I'm compelled by this, and I write this in the piece, right? the reason why I am compelled by this argument is that was exactly the argument I was making with the Lincoln Project. And I've said this before, this wasn't a scene in the movie, but it should have been. As Stuart Stevens asked me, Mike, if we've got to close the last two weeks of the campaign on economic issues or cultural issues, which one would you suggest? And immediately I said cultural issues. And when I said that, he, he kind of stepped back. And I, and, and I felt myself sitting back because I had never said that before. The way we kept these female voters in with us was by having them focus on the economic stuff at hand. Trump changed that. We were able to talk about the party being the party of the Confederate soldier and Confederate monuments and a threat to abortion and being anti-gay and anti-Muslim and anti-Hispanic and anti-Black and anti-everything except for white people. We made it politically untenable for white college-educated people to say, I'm voting for Trump and go into the country club at the same time with a Trump 2020 shirt. It'll run you out of there because college-educated people are saying, go to hell with that shit. Get that crap out of here. That's the environment we wanted to create, which is essentially what Gavin Newsom is now leaning into. And he's saying we can win with enough blue precincts, enough metropolitan areas voting in such an overwhelming way that we can actually win in red states. And it's a compelling argument. It's a very compelling argument to me. And, and again, I, I'm not judging whether it's right or wrong morally. It's not my job. It's not what I'm an expert on. I, I tend to agree with being a social progressive, but that's not my job. My job is to look at the data and look at the math and say, can you win? In 1992, I think Bill Clinton was exactly right. The Democratic Party couldn't win middle-class white voters with the issues that the Democrats were talking about. I'm looking at the math now. And not, not only am I saying I think they can, shit, I was running the campaign that was doing it in 2020, and we won. So, yeah, he's the first Democrat that's kind of figured it out and said, why are we worried? Why are we scared of these issues? In fact, he's, he's, he's saying, you want to talk about trans issues on Bud Light? I'm going to go talk about the lynching museum in Mississippi. I'm going to go talk about the Confederate soldiers or confederate recognition day that florida still has by the way florida still has a state holiday for the confederate day florida so uh, when you lean into those and this existential threat like abortion pops up as it has in wisconsin it's a very compelling argument that the, that america in 2023 is not america in 1992 but the democratic party still led by the way Diane Feinstein was elected in 1992 to the Senate, okay? There's still this mindset from the, the party elders that we can't do that. And I think they're wrong. 
half of the electorate in 2024 are going to be Gen Z or Gen Zs and millennials. Half. Like that's how fast old people are dying out of this thing. So I, I think you can get the margins that you need as a Democrat in places like Georgia and Arizona and North Carolina and in Wisconsin. I think that it's possible. And um, I think Gavin Newsom is teaching the Democratic Party how to, to be the first Democrat to actually win in the culture wars. So, sorry, long, long diatribe there, but I hope it was helpful, Kevin. I hope, hope we answered uh, your Jenna's question about Wisconsin. Um, did we get there? Yeah, I think your, your answers are always helpful. Thanks so much. I appreciate that, man. You appreciate eat. Your... Go ahead. Sorry, I'm trying to get my dog back. <laughs> That's right. I appreciate um appreciate you joining. Appreciate you being um, a longtime supporter and a fan. And I really appreciate you asking the question um, before the show. Uh, you know, when, when I do post that we're going to do the show that day, feel free, guys, to just reply and say, Mike, talk about this today. Talk about this today so that we make sure that we get that in the queue. Uh, Kevin, thanks. I'm going to move on to Peggy, if that's okay. Uh, longtime uh, supporter and fan, too. Peggy, I know you were asking about it last week, so apologize. I know that you've got some questions that you want to have asked. And I didn't get you last week, but what's on your mind? Oh, you got to all my questions list. <laughs> I, have, oh. I have a million questions. Thank mm-hmm. God. Yeah. Thank God. Um, but I want to do some local stuff right now. Um, so I asked you a few months ago, how do I talk to the elites in the Democratic Party to get them to care about the working class? Mm-hmm. So about three weeks later, I was asked to join the Affordable Housing Committee in my in my town, right? Did that, went to one meeting. I was, after the meeting, I was asked two things. I was asked to write an op-ed, which I'm working on. Good. And I was asked to be interviewed on local TV, which I did. Good, good. Okay, so the challenge, I I saw that affordable housing issue as a challenge to bridge the gap. Mm -hmm. But Democrats, again, they have to understand that we're not looked at as the working class party. And to bring working class people in, you have to talk about veterans, nurses, firefighters that can't afford to live in the town. And who's going to put out the fire? Like, it, it's, it seems simple to me because I've been hanging on. And I, and I listen to what you're saying. I mean, you're political operative. You're for sure smarter than me. So Yeah, don't, a, a, a little bit of advice. Don't call it affordable housing in your op-ed. Call it workforce housing. Ah. Okay. Call it that workforce down. Yeah, call workforce housing and talk exactly about those three constituencies. Four, if you're feeling right. uh, froggy about it. A friend of mine says feeling froggy, but uh, teachers, nurses, firefighters. Right. All, uh, th- we all need to live in our communities. Talk. I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but in New York, you have you have a you have a catastrophe. Y- you need firefighters. You need nurses. Close. Which brings me to the fourth is is, is police officers too. Yes, you, you need those four, and they're they're very you know. And I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant on the on the police officers one, although I uh, I, I lead all of my campaigns when my candidate has uh, a badge of police officer stuff. But talk about the need in a in a city like New York and region like New York, you need those four professions living in their neighborhoods. You can't have them commuting sixty miles away to work. If something Absolutely. goes wrong, if there's a, if there's an act of terror, if there's if there's a, a catastrophe, if there's some, these are people that you need in your community. You need nurses, you need first responders, you need close, and that's that's where I would talk about that workforce housing uh, with specific professions 
where people can afford to live in the in the city in the communities where they work. One of one of my biggest challenges is what I wrote in the chat. Like first off, like I'm 65. There's a lot of us boomers. When I go to these rallies and all of that, there's a lot of us boomers still out there fighting. Um, and I'm, I'm 60. I just turned 65 in January. And look at my energy. My God. Yeah, I wear myself out sometimes. You got more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so thank you for that. So the second thing mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about is how I... I really feel like these MAGA Republicans are coming for New York. Remember I mentioned that? And it was like, ah, you were kind of iffy about it. But then look what happened on Long Island. Long Island turned red. Stefanik's up there in um, New York 21. There's a couple other MAGA Republicans who won. And then Jim Jordan is bringing this sideshow to New York. Like they, I think they're really trying to sway New Yorkers away from Democrats something that is really also concerning me is it, again, it's like with the Fox thing, there's so many levels to it, right? Mm-hmm. I'm starting to see a couple of yard signs, two in my neighborhood about audit New York. Right. And I went on the website and what it is, it's, it's trying to cast doubt on the 2020 presidential election in New York state. And they're organizing like a campaign asking people to join. What are you good at? Are you good at social media? Are you good at ads? Things like that. And uh, it's the two women on the side of two white evangelical women who are supposedly in charge of the organizing, but I'm sure there's more behind that. Like Lee Zeldin's been very quiet. So there's this other thing rising up. That if you go to the, the website, New York Audit, I mean, it's just incredible. And no one seems to be concerned about this. And my hair is on fire about it because it's like, okay, it's in its beginning stages. What can, what do we do about this? So uh, look, I think your instincts are exactly right. That's a very compelling message. So, so let me say this as, as a political, I'm going to give you some political professional advice here. Okay. No judgment about the, the morality or the ethics. You're talking to a political consultant. So I'm going to tell you the way you approach this. Absolutely. If you're on the losing side of an argument, and it's hard. The, the reason why the audit New York frame is so powerful is even if you're, you know, a die in the wool Democrat, what's wrong with auditing it? What's wrong with knowing where things are at? Right. That's what can, makes it so compelling. Can I, can I just tell you what the yes. message is on the sign? I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mike. No, go, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead. The message on the sign is that there's so many thousand more votes than there are voters on Long Island. And it, that's the. That's probably not the, the, the grabber, which that's when they can't help themselves. And that's going to be your, your, your biggest strength, by the way, is their own weakness. They, the thing about Republicans, they can't help themselves on these issues. It, the, who they are always reveals itself, mm-hmm. which is where I'm going with the second point. So if you're losing the frame on the auditing, right, no one's going to be against an audit. We're all for audits because audits are supposed to you know show us the transparency of something we're predisposed to believe, which is government is ineffective. It's wasteful. It's, you know, it's, it's duplicative. It's all those things. Let's do an audit. We all want that. If you're going to lose that argument, though, let's just say you are. What you need to do then is you need to undermine and attack the credibility of the messengers. And you said something very important as you were describing who was behind it. Evangelicals. Now, I'm not suggesting that you attack evangelicals, but by simply bringing up the fact that it's these evangelical activists starts to put question in people's minds on why they're doing this. So what you really do need to do is focus all of your effort, energy, and time not trying to focus people on paying attention to 
your correct assumption that these guys are onto something, focus on who the people are behind it and what they're doing. And when you see people in the evangelical community or some of these MAGA supporters, or if you've got somebody in a MAGA hat on their Facebook page who's posting this stuff on audit, screenshot that, keep that stuff. All of that is a documented trail of this is a Trump evangelical right-wing conspiracy theory driven movement that's which that's how you attack it don't attack the message you're not going to win that right it's going to make you crazy attack the messengers what was making me crazy was i'm telling people in the democratic committee that are higher up and they're like oh don't pay attention to it don't be concerned about it and i'm like listen This is just part of the whole thing, you know? They're wrong in the same way that they were probably wrong about saying, oh, the anti-vax thing's not a big deal. It's a couple of crackpots. Thank you. They're wrong. You're right. But once, and so the best way to counter it, like same thing with vaccines. I can't convince you the vaccine is important to save you and your kids' lives. Then my job becomes to limit the danger of what you're doing, which is to isolate and ostracize that type of thinking. And, and, and maybe people be very critical of that. That's fine. But I, I did stuff for, for the medical community uh, as we were starting to not hit, you know, herd immunity rates because the anti-vax stuff was getting so strong in California. And the question becomes, do you try to persuade these people through education or do you ostracize them and try to isolate enough people and make them so ashamed to have these positions that they either don't talk about it publicly or they will be fine if their husband or wife goes and gets the shot, right? And that was the strategy we ultimately employed is because the days of persuading people are over. They believe their own bullshit. There's so many information sources out there that they're going to get far more information that they want sent to them algorithmically in ways you cannot compete with than than anything you can do to, to convince them in a public setting or with a public argument. So don't do that. Don't try to do that. Try to limit and contain it and explain to everybody else who's behind it. Because that tells them, that bit of information tells them everything else they need to know about whatever else they're saying. I see. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Peg, I'm going to move on to our next caller, if that's okay. Sure, sure. I'm trying to hang up. (laughs) That's okay. Thanks for joining. Thanks for always being there and for your support. Ina, Ina, sorry, I don't, help me with your name. Uh, Ina, it's fine. Hello. Ina, thank you for joining. Yeah, I can hear you. Thanks. Um, I've got two questions and I'm sorry, I joined late. Okay. <laughs> so you may have answered one of them. It's okay. Um, so with the settlement and the various other lawsuits against Fox News, mm-hmm. will that jeopardize the ability of Republicans to essentially tone down the crazy? No, I think that's a good question. My, my sense, my sense of things is not that it's going to naturally tone it down. Rather, it's going to splinter it. Is the, the, the Fox News sits atop the right-wing me, eco, media ecosystem, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And, and it has been a strong, powerful force for probably 15, 20 years. Um, it, it has changed and it has morphed into something that is much more reflective of the base as opposed to driving the base. 
Many of you have heard me say, me say before too that I think that the only person that can beat Donald say before too that I think that the only person that can beat Donald Trump in the Republican primary is Tucker Carlson. Mm-hmm. And I, I still believe that. I don't think Tucker's gonna run. But the reason why I, I say that is because he is literally the official mouthpiece of everything that everybody on the American right needs to be angry or scared or pissed off about. Mm-hmm. Like he literally tells them every night, this is what we're gonna be mad about today. And the reason why the, why that's going to mitigate after this is because we're going to start seeing a rise of people challenging the dominance. We're going to start seeing a rise of people challenging the dominance, the, 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 the monolith that is Fox News. And, and the reason why that's going to happen is because Fox has a business decision to make. It can either veer back towards mainstream journalism and stay out of the legal nonsense that it's been involved in, or it can fight for more market share, and the market share that's coming up, the, the big, huge viewership that Fox News has, is already predisposed to a lot of the lies that Fox News has been echoing. And I'm using that word very deliberately. They echo the lies. They're not creating the lies. The lies are created lower down in the Petri dish, and they bubble up. And once a large audience of influencers on the right-wing media influence spheres starts to echo the same message, Fox News will jump on it and echo it because their audience is already predisposed to believe it. That's what the Dominion lawsuit was showing us in disclosure, discovered the discovery process with all of those text messages from Tucker saying, Sydney Powell is crazy and she's dangerous and she's that's what the Dominion lawsuit was showing us in disclosure, discovered the discovery process with all of those text messages from Tucker saying, Sidney Powell's crazy and she's dangerous and she's lying. And Brett Beyer texting saying, we know this isn't true, but we're going to lose market share if we don't get out front of it. Them documenting their strategic thinking, not just the fact that they knew that they were lying, but why they were lying. I think Brett Beyer's was specifically insightful is he's worried that if they don't echo what's already out, he's worried that if they don't echo what's already out there they will lose listenership and eyeballs and clicks to those that are willing to do that and that's why what what happened so was so profound it wasn't the money that they lost although that was a lot what they lost was the ability to dominate and echo what bubbles up from the swamp they can either go down that direction and they will devolve into a bevy of lawsuits or they will go to the, the center, I guess is the right way to say it, and say, we're going to start using journalistic ethics again and start talking about honest news and get out of the conspiracy theory business, in which case they're going to lose a massive amount of their audience. Either way they go, they're going to lose market share and lose their efficacy, especially since of Donald Trump and other voices are attacking them for not you know, supporting Donald Trump, for being with Ron DeSantis. It's a very precarious spot for Fox to be in. They're not gonna implode, by the way. Fox News is not gonna just go away or we're bankrupt or we're losing market share. That's not what's gonna happen. It's gonna, it's gonna like I was explaining earlier, I don't know if you're there for a bit, they're right now the tip of the spear that looks like this. By the presidential election, it's gonna start looking like this. There's going to be a lot more news sources saying a lot more things, and they're just going to ignore it or not, not, not echo a lot of what's bubbling up the way that they used to. They'll just go on to different news stories 
that may be sideshows, but at least they are defensible from a legal perspective. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, well, my second question is kind of vaccine related. Okay. Um, so right now the Republicans are holding hearings on the National Institute, Institutes uh, for Health, NIH, mm -hmm. and which is just for background, does a lot of basic research and further background, we are kind of on the cusp of this incredible medical revolution. We actually, you know, for some cancers, we beat cancer and we're trying to right now do uh, tumor cancers. So solid tumor cancers, which is like uh, breast cancer and what have you. Um, okay. So, um, with, and they're trying, they're thinking of cutting NIH's funding and that's already beginning to have an effect. Would that be a good issue for Democrats to sort of put on blast? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, it's uh, the best way. That's great. It's, and sorry you're dealing with that, first of all, because it's important work. But um, the short answer is yes, it's an important one but it needs to be put in the context of what it is. It's really just another brick in the wall to, to reaffirm the fact that the Republican Party is an anti-science party whose actions are uh, endangering and threatening people's lives. Now, well, we in California aren't dealing with it because we've got our, we, we actually fund our own NIH, so we're good. Yeah. <laughs> the rest we're, of the country that's dealing with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and we're kind of in a dangerous spot by, by saying in California we're good because, you know, there's always so much of the federal government you can lose before California realizes it can't stand on its own. You know, just, to, just today, California, by the way, this is really fascinating. I think it was today or maybe it was yesterday. I'm forgetting my days. Um, you know, Tony Atkins, uh, who's the Senate pro tem of mm -hmm. our, the president pro tem of our, of our state Senate, uh, an open lesbian woman, right. um, is, is opposing a bill uh, that California has to, to prevent California's traveling to states with yep. anti-transgender laws. Yep. You're asking why why is an openly gay, democratic, very progressive woman doing <laughs> Because you've got to talk to other people, it turns out, in Texas and things like that, yeah. It turns out you can't stand alone. And, and one of the big problems is if California is going to be a, a, a safe haven state for women coming to get abortions from other states, we can't bring them here and then not be able to send them back. Right. That, that's a big part of it. And so California is not, we are one of 50 states. We are a United States of America. There's only so much we can isolate ourselves from yeah. policy and funding before we realize we, we can be affected by federal legislation. It's not as bad as Mississippi, but, but we can't stand alone as long as we're in this union. And until we say we're going to secede, you know, we, we've, you know, we are a part of this country and, and uh, I think I, I bring that up only because I do believe that that is a salient political issue. Now, having said that, do I believe it's a dominant political issue? No, I don't. Okay. And the reason why is because we just witnessed the depth of denial on health science that a wide swath of our American and California friends and neighbors will go through to deny science. They're willing to die for it. 
okay? Yeah. They're willing to say that the COVID-19 was a hoax, that it's ivermectin. I was just thinking about this the other day on my walk. I go on these morning walks to kind of clear my head a little bit. Folks, people are, <laughs> people are peddling ivermectin as a, as, a, as, a, as a solution to COVID-19 in this country, mm-hmm. like in, in broad scale. Like, I think about that. And it's like, I can't, it's, it's shocking still, like what we were doing, what we were believing, what, what, how deep it will go. So cutting NIH funding is a little bit like cutting um, any specific department. It, it, it's a sign of the values, and it's, it's, it should be viewed as a brick in the wall. It's not a lead argument, but it's certainly something that people should be knowing more and more about. The problem is those that are predisposed to believe you are already with you. Those, there's a wide swath of Republicans that probably believe we don't need an NIH. We need to get rid of it entirely because they don't understand what it is and what they've been consuming about what it is and what it does uh, is is not based in reality. So the, the, I, I'm always thinking, like, what's going to move that college-educated Republican suburban voter? This is one of those issues. It will. Okay. It's not a key issue. It's not a central issue. Like, you're not going to have people storming to the voting booth going, they're going to cut NIH funding on this stuff. But there is absolutely skilled, smart ways to do that because cancer is one of those things where everybody in America knows somebody who's been affected by cancer. Right. Everybody. And if there's one thing about politics, it's if you have an issue where people are close in proximity to the issue, you can change people's behaviors about them. And unfortunately, cancer is such a big part of of our lives that almost every American has been touched by it, if not personally, than with family or friends or neighbors. Like we know somebody who has. And that that becomes something very specific. So my suggestion would be, yes, you should amplify it. Use the right messengers, always very important. Try to use a female messenger because you're speaking to women. And also try to have cancer survivors that would say, I would not have survived had this research not been done. Also, the younger the demographic, the better, just because it's a much, it's a more sympathetic character. Oh, so those kids that were in the first, uh, like the trial uh, for CAR T, those that that now grew up and stuff, those would be the kinds of. That's a great. That's a very powerful story. Very powerful story. I I can. I literally, when you're saying that, I can see that whole whole commercial. If you did on video. You have them growing up in little pictures, old old frames to where they are now telling the story of their experience and what it meant. That's extraordinarily powerful. That's going to move the demographic that you want. That's how you protect, preserve, and fight for NIH funding. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I think, I don't know if, I I know the the story I saw the other day. I mean, she's, she's a girl. She just went to college. If you know her or can find her, if she's willing to be an advocate, that's an extraordinarily powerful voice. She did a profile in the New Yorker. I can't yeah. remember, yeah. but she did have a profile in the New Yorker. That's what you want, is you want to have her be a... a now, again, anybody reading the New Yorker... It's not, not a Republican. I'm not a Republican, I know. Yeah. yeah. But, but, well, well, but college-educated Republican women, that, that, is, that is credible, like I said, right? It's not like they're not Bud Light drinkers. Right. They, they are college educated. They, they are concerned about cultural issues. They're absolutely the people co- that are, care about health issues in their families. They're the ones picking out the health plans. 
They're the ones, you know, looking at the deductibles. They're the ones that are worried and concerned about that. It's female head of household. It's not, it's not men in most instances. So that, that, again, I'm not trying to diminish the New Yorker. I've written piece for the New York, uh, 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 you know, I read the New Yorker, but I'm not, I'm not reflective of the average Republican voter, as you know. What I'm saying is we need to, you know, use those as third party messengers to validate this person in the story you're telling. And remember, I'm, I mean, I'm a storyteller. As a political consultant, my job is to tell a story. That's your job. What's the most impactful way to tell this story? And what you're saying is very impactful. These younger people, as, as children who uh, were on these clinical trials, they um, survived or, or, you know. Uh, they survived. They're, they're, yeah, survived an unsurvi unsurvivable disease. And, you know, now it's. You know, for, for blood cancers, it's norm. It's like the normal thing. You that's basically. an incredibly powerful story. We used to before COVID. We used to use like doctors, like put a guy in a white lab coat and say, you know, nine out of ten doctors surveys say the doctor's credibility has come down with this constituency because again, just the the, yeah. the crazy narratives. Like doctors are like the deep state. They're like bad people. <laughs> But when you have a personal story, I survived, I went through this, this was my struggle, and I would be dead today if not for, that's incredibly powerful. That's the way you tell that story. Hmm. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, no, it's helpful. Okay, thank you. I feel like Lucy with the free psych psychological, free or five cents for political consulting advice. Uh, and I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it, by the way, because it's it's important. It's good to see people who are active and involved. And if I can be helpful with your advocacy efforts, and I mean, use this that's time. That's that's what I do, right? Is I'm that's what I do for a living. So make sure that you the messenger is more important than the message. Write that down. The messenger is more important than the message. And so when you're when you're going to tell your story, it's really important that you understand the audience that you're speaking to. Okay, and in this instance, you're speaking to Republicans, right? Because that's where you, that impact is going to be. But where's that sliver of Republicans that are actually going to listen to you? It's a female audience. Even more than a female audience, it's going to be a college-educated audience, college-educated female audience, right? How do I tell a story that they're going to listen to? What's a messenger, more than the message, that that audience is going to listen to? And I think you've got a very powerful one. I mean, I get what you're saying, Mike, but I mean, part of me is like, how is it, how is the messenger more important than the message that it is not inconceivable that within our lifetime, um, assuming we have the right insurance because we live in America, um, that we will one day go to see our doctor, our doctor will say, dear so-and-so, you have cancer, please go down to the lab and get your cancer shot so that your immune system can go learn to fight this particular cancer. I mean, it's not, it's, it sounds crazy, but it's entirely possible that that's going to happen. No, I think that's it, it pretty much already happened with bloodborne cancers. Yeah, no, I think it's, I, I think it's like uh, uh, the, um, keep the NIH. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. yeah just uh, in storytelling, I mean, finding the right messenger is just, it's, it's absolutely critical. I mean, what you're doing is amazing work. I have no doubt that it's going to come to pass. I hope that it does. And obviously 
we need to make sure that the government's doing the right thing, which is a trick these days. Yeah, and, and but, that, but remember, that you know, let me put it this way. If Donald Trump came out and did a press conference when he was president saying that, immediately half the country would say, the guy's a crackpot. He's lost his mind. Yeah. You know, same, same thing if Joe Biden says it. It's the exact opposite. Yeah. So that's why it's important. It doesn't matter what's being said. It's who's saying it. You have to find that credible third party. We call that, you know, the credible third party. Somebody who's telling your story. Okay. Okay. Okay, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Let me take Andrew, just because Andrew's uh, built up enough political cachet from Australia to get in the last question of the evening. Brother, how are you? Hey, how are you, mate? All right. You good? Yeah, thanks for joining, man. Sometimes I'm, Sorry, I don't just, know if I've lost yeah, you. Or not. Yeah, sometimes the, the time zones can be a bit funky down here. <laughs> so, um, uh, just a quick one. Um, did you see that there was a change in balance in the Supreme Court in Wisconsin? And what does that have? Um, how does that play out for the House for the next presidential election? The question. Give me the question again. Did I say that there was a what? The um there was a flip of the Supreme Court in Wisconsin and they might redraw the maps now. And yeah, maybe you did a whole segment on this earlier. Let me wrap yeah, up with this, because it is important. It is important. So it's going to be a more fair map because from what I can tell, it seems to be quite gerrymandered, that state. I don't believe that the abortion issue is going to go away for a while. I believe that's going to benefit Democrats. I don't believe that it's because of anything that the Democrats have done. I believe because it's in a backlash reaction against the Republicans. And if in the same way that it worked in 2022, uh, after post Dobbs, I think Wisconsin was a direct reflection of that. Right. Even Ann, even Ann Coulter was saying, stop talking about abortion. We're getting our asses kicked. Okay. I think, I think that there is the possibility of a, um, of a generational uh, realignment. And I don't use that word lightly. We, political realignments are very rare occurrences. But I, I do believe if I look back from 2016, 2018, 2020, 2022, you're seeing this college-educated female demographic, four out of those five elections, Republican women, enough of them voting for Democrats to say, it's not a coincidence anymore. Four out of five times is a trend. But I also want to say they're not voting for Democrats. They're voting against Republicans. And what Democrats really need to do is, first of all, understand that. Second, listen to that and breathe it in. And then third, build an issues matrix and a messaging strategy that understands that and speaks to that. Okay? And if you're able to do that, I think that the Democrats can keep winning elections on it for some time. Not not exclusively, but for the moment, I believe Democrats have the upper hand in the crazy wars. The, The American public views Republicans as the most extreme party, and they have in four of the last five elections. And that's what happened in Wisconsin. But relying on your opposition to be crazy is not a strategy. No. And, and the Democrats have not figured that out yet. 
and that's not uncommon in organizations is, is they think that, you know, it's, it's them. They're smarter and they're better. And, and, you know, a lot of Democrats, of course, think that. I, I, I don't believe that about political parties. I think they're both bad in their own ways. I, there's nothing inherently virtuous about a political party. It's a vehicle. It's an organization of coalitions to, to get political power. That's all a party is. They're not, they're, neither one is more virtuous by the nature of their existence than the other. They're just these things you align with. So and that's, and I know that's heresy in today's world, right? Like I'd be burned at the stake if I was in front of people saying that, but it's, it's just true. <laughs> There's nothing virtuous about a political party. And if you don't think that they change over time, look at the Democratic Party, you know, in the 1950s, right? They, they both change over time. The Democratic Party, by the way, the Republican Party has changed in my lifetime, obviously, right? A lot, a lot. The Republican Party that I joined today is nothing like the Republican Party I joined in 1988, 1989. But, but neither is the Democratic Party. This is part of the book I'm writing. Is I, I grew up in a working class, blue collar, Latino family. My father was a diehard Democrat. He would look at the Democratic Party today and say, this is not my party. The hell is this? <laughs> there's, there's nothing working class about the Democratic Party. And I'd, oh, build back better and blah, 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 blah. No, sorry. And again, that's not Mike Madrid saying it. It's the working class saying it. Bottom line is this. Negative partisanship still run, uh, rules the day. There are lessons to be learned about what happened in Wisconsin for Democrats to start realigning female voters of all education groups, of all ethnicities, of all geographies, geographic reasons, uh, regions, but the chances of them actually being self-aware enough to do that is de minimis. And there's a ton of exposure on them very easily becoming the party of the extremes if they allow Republicans to capture the battleground of the culture wars. And they're very capable of doing that. Nine times out of 10, Democrats are gonna lose the culture war debate because they don't know how to fight it. They try to explain it and rationalize it. And that's not what they should be doing. They should not, they should be on the offense, but Democrats have this real peculiar need. It's very weird for me as a political consultant who's always worked with Republicans to work with Democrats now. And Democrats have this need to explain and rationalize everything. And as we say in the business, if you're explaining, you're losing. Don't explain run offense, run offense, run offense. You don't see Republicans trying to explain shit. So just move um, on to the next yeah. issue. Just move forward, 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 and dominate the cycle every day while the Democrats are still trying to explain the story four or five days ago. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked by how many Democrats are still trying to explain how critical race theory is or isn't good or bad or blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> like, you're never going to win that debate. Why are you having it? You're getting your ass kicked every time you're sitting there trying to explain what it is and what it isn't. Keep moving you're, on. You're, you're wasting opportunity. Um, so was it an own goal then by DeSantis signing six-week ban in Florida? Say that again? Was it an own goal by DeSantis signing a six-week ban in Florida then? Yeah, I, I think it's really bad move by DeSantis politically. Uh, really bad. I think what he's doing with Disney is really bad. Um, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna come back and bite him. Um I also believe, and again, this is kind of this goes back to Sun Tzu, right? And I'm not, I hate to be the you know, ten cent warrior here. You know, the old never interfere with your enemy while he's in the process of destroying himself. 
I don't, I don't believe that anymore. Not that's that worked. That worked, you know, pre-culture war. In the culture wars, go throw gas on that guy. If he's going to start playing with matches, go throw gas on him. Go, go take that fight to him. Go have that fight. And look what Disney is doing, by the way. Disney's like they're doubling and tripling down because they're demographic. They know their demographic better than anybody. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, Disney knows its marketing better than any company, any political party, any church. Mm-hmm. Any corporation, anybody in the world, those guys have it nailed. They know their market. They're not making a mistake, okay? If the mistake is being made by Disney or DeSantis, I'm going to tell you DeSantis is the one making a mistake 99 times out of 100, okay? It just, as, just as if you're going to ask me who's going to win that fight, Disney's going to win that fight. DeSantis will yep. slink away from it when he realizes he's just bleeding political capital left and right especially in Florida, but he's not going to win that fight. He is demographically not going to win that fight. And I can tell you why is Disney is seeing their own numbers. And trust me, they've got, they've got so much data on their, not only their customer base, but their kids base. They, they, they know this from a marketing perspective so well, when you see them continue to double and triple down, it tells you that this fight is helping them. They're winning. And I guarantee you they're winning. So, Mark, if um, yeah, so Mark, if you run, yeah, if you're running DNC, Mike, would you be would you be going hard against DeSantis now early, driving driving his unfavorables up so he's knocked out before the game starts, or you don't care? I would ignore him. I, I think DeSantis is a non-entity. I think he is the most overhyped candidate since probably. I, I think he's probably one of the most overhyped candidates ever. I, I, there's no data saying this guy is competitive in the Republican primary at this point. And by the time, if Donald Trump falls over dead or, yeah. or runs to Russia or whatever he does, <laughs> let's, say, let's say he gets out of this. DeSantis is not ready for the fight that's going to be coming to him. So don't help him. Ignore him. Let, there's nothing that the Democrats can do that Trump isn't going to do to this guy. Okay, and it's already happening. I mean, he's already mm. Trump is up to mid twenties now. I mean, we, I did an episode on this, I think, three or four weeks ago, saying, yeah, you know, Trump's up, you know, eight ten points. The fundamentals are favoring Trump. Trump gets indicted. I said he's going to get stronger. What happens? He's now sitting in the mid high twenties and all the, the the polling averages. There's no oxygen in the room for DeSantis. Don't don't help him. Uh, you, you can do what Gavin Newsom's doing, which is go have that fight with him, but not because it helps DeSantis. It's because it it helps the Democratic Party nationally. Yep. So he's so, DOA on the on stage. I, I mean, look, I, I, I I'm old enough to know that no one's ever out in this business ever. Like Anthony Weiner will probably come back at some point, right? Like no one's ever out. If you're completely shameless, if you have no shame, you're never out. The dynamics can always change. Okay, they can always change. So no one's ever out, but I mean, the fundamentals of this race, they've, I mean, Trump's support base is weaker than it has ever been, but it is dominant in the Republican Party. Mm. Both can be true. Both are true. So I don't, I don't know what DeSantis's message is. He was saying viability, right? But you can't be viable in the mid twenties when Trump is 15 points ahead of you. 
you've got to start peeling voters off. And his decision, I'm not going to say it was a bad one. I think it's an immoral one. But politically, his decision is I'm going to flank him to the right on these cultural issues. Okay, and then I'm going to let him, you know, sink himself, tie his anchor to his legal problems, and he'll drown, and then I'll be the heir apparent. That's that's DeSantis's two pronged strategy: outflank Trump on the right on the cultural stuff, yep. and and let him sink by with his own legal problems. That that's that's his strategy. And I'm not going to announce. I'll go on this book tour, you know, but I'm not going to announce until summer if he announces. Remember, I'm not saying he is or isn't, but I am going to say this. I said I think. Months ago, DeSantis, 25, 30% chance he doesn't run. I think it's higher now. I think it's 30, 35. But you heard it here first, everybody, okay? Because everyone's going to be like a genius. And all say, oh, I said DeSantis, blah, 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 all the talking heads if he doesn't run. There's no rational reason why, why DeSantis would run right now. None. So what? Build a war chest and wait. What was that? Build, build up the war chest and wait till the next cycle. Yeah, be the guy that said you should have run, right? You that you want you that's who you want to be. Not why are you running? You want to be why didn't you run, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to be the guy that you know w- when they see your statue they say why did they build a statue to that guy, or do you want to be the guy that they always ask why didn't they ever build a statue to that guy, right? Like no, that's no. the question. I think. How long? Yeah, how, how long until the first debate for the primary? When does that start, Mike? Yeah. So. I mean, Mike, 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 when's the first debates? When do they start? Next year? Is it this oh, year yeah. or next year? Spring. Yeah, yeah spring. And again, oh, and, and a million things are going to happen by then. Oh, okay? okay? A million things are going to happen by then. That could be oh. Tucker could get into the race. Tucker. Trump could have a stroke. <laughs> Who the hell knows? Yeah. Anything can happen, right? And it will happen. It will. Yeah, that's why you have campaigns. That's what life is. But yeah. right now, all I can do is look at right now at the fundamentals. DeSantis has never been a challenger. That may change. But right now, the fundamentals are not in his favor. They never have been. So Thanks, thanks, Mikey. Thanks, guys. Love talking to you. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Mike Drop. Please share it with your friends. Shoot it out on social media. Again, we're going to try to get as regular as we can. I don't know if that's going to work out or not. I'm writing a book. Things are a little bit crazy. If more news breaks... We'll jump on the way that we do, get some last-minute stuff. If you have any ideas, shoot them to me on social media, too. Um, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I like having them this way. We can start on one topic but move into a whole bevy of other areas. And if you need some political consulting advice, I'm here to give you some free political consulting advice. Love you guys. Thanks for uh, for joining this episode of Mic Drop. We will talk to you next time.